High School Slumber Party is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things Cage Club related, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Welcome, brothers, vigils, salesmen, and a special shout out to all you out there who just want to say no. This is High School Slumber Party, the podcast where me and some friends look back at our teenage years through the lens of some iconic high school-centric films. I'm Brian Rodriguez, and the Slumber Party's at my place this evening. But first, school is still in session, and we have some homework to chat about. This was your assignment. And I would like to see the results. First of all, happy Veterans Day in the United States. That was yesterday, to be exact. But just wanted to wish our veterans a happy day and a thank you for your service. Veterans and unveterans alike, I hope you did your homework. I hope you listened to our two-parter on Garden State for our very, very special class reunion series. John Brooks, Caragill Regan, what a fun conversation, one of my favorite conversations I've ever had here on High School Slumber Party. If you didn't do your homework, I'll let it slide, senior. I trust you. But come on, do your homework. And you can listen to that episode and all other past High School Slumber Party episodes on cageclub.me, that's cageclub.me, the home of so many other great pop culture podcasts. Of course, you can listen where you're listening right now, whether that be Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher as well. And while you're there today, do me a favor, press pause and hit that subscribe button. Also, please, if you can, give us a five-star rating or a positive review. More importantly, maybe, tell a friend about High School Slumber Party. We're having a lot of fun here. I had an old friend who hadn't listened for a while, and then, you know, started listening again recently. They're like, wow, these episodes are good. And that's not to say the old episodes are bad, but I don't know. It's nice to get a compliment, right? So tell a friend about all the great things we do here on High School Slumber Party. Okay, your other homework, of course, was to watch The Chocolate War. This is a movie that I think went under the radar, but you know what? I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised. Well, at least with our opinion on it. You've already seen it because you've done your homework. So let's get into The Chocolate War, shall we? Our guest today is a first-timer, Bobby Fischer. Can't wait till you hear what he has to say. Definitely, definitely a true scholar. Well, look who we have here on our high school dream phone hotline. It is Mr. Dan Cologne. I should say Dan Cologne of the wildly, wildly successful Monsters That Made Us podcast. Dan, first of all, how have you been? I've been great, Brian. Uh, Thanks for having me. What an introduction. (laughs) Well, I mean, I can't do justice to the, the, what is it? I don't know, last two weeks that the Monsters Have Made Us has had with that uh, variety piece. How cool was that? The thing about that is that 
I never set out to do this podcast uh, for any sort of, um, you know, recognition. You know, I wasn't looking for that. It's just something that I wanted to do because I find a lot, I get a lot of enjoyment out of doing it. And I think I've said on the show, like I would do it even if we had, you know, five listeners. But um, the fact that we were featured in Variety is like a dream come true. You know, I went to film school and, you know, anybody who goes to film school dreams about having their name appear in Variety, right? I mean, that's the ultimate publication for that industry. And so the fact that it just sort of happened, I'm still kind of getting over it, right? I, I, I still doesn't feel real. Yeah, I mean, it was like, first of all, awesome to see and congratulations on that again and just congratulations on the show in general. But Variety, it's like, whoa, like, you know, that that's so fun and Shout out to them for like recognizing you guys, and of course, shout out to yourself. And that's uh, you know, what you and Mike are doing there. It's glad that, like you said, you would do it for five people, but it's cool that you are getting some notice because it is such a labor of love. Like specifically, like that show, like the yeah. research, the yeah. research you put in. I know, you know, your conversation and the editing as well. Like that, that's a show that takes time. So it's awesome to see, like again, the recognition. Yeah, it's incredibly validating. You know, it's, I, we, we, we do this show and um, I, I tell people about it. You know, my girlfriend will tell people about it. And uh, at the same time, I'm like, I realize it's, it's sort of a niche subject, right? And most of the people we're talking to, I find myself saying, eh, you don't have to listen. You know, like, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't know why I say that, you know, but it's just that's sort of the attitude I, I have. It's just like if it's there to listen to, if you want to listen to it, it's not something that I actively go out of my way to, to promote. So yeah, I, like, I, I don't know how it made its way into the periphery of somebody at Variety, but it did. And I'm very grateful for that. I've seen um, a huge spike in uh, listenership. So I know we're reaching a lot more people now. So uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how else to, to say it. It's really just the most amazing thing. Big congratulations on that. Super awesome. Thank you. But also wanted to bring you on because I know every November you do uh, your pretty cool Movember campaign. And, you know, just wanted our slumberers here to uh, get, get a little uh, info on that, if you don't mind sharing. Sure. Yeah. So for the past seven years, I have officially participated in the Movember fundraiser. Before that, I was uh, sort of participating uh, because I thought it'd be fun to grow a mustache, you know, just kind of. <laughs> Uh, have some funny uh, facial hair for, for a month. And then once I realized that there was like an actual Movember foundation and that it was it was more than just silly facial hair, I got really into the idea of doing it for a good cause. And so for people who aren't familiar with the, the Movember fa- foundation, it is a charity that raises money for a number of men's health issues, including prostate cancer, testicular cancer, and mental illness. I think most people know somebody who's affected by mental illness at the very least. And so that's why uh, I feel like this is such a great fundraiser, because I think most people can connect with it. So I get really excited about, you know, growing a mustache, talking to people about men's health, and, and raising money for this incredible charity. Definitely a cool cause. Definitely a something that I guess seven years. That's crazy that, that you've been doing it that long. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm very uh, fortunate in that as I've gotten older, I look more appropriate with a mustache. Because <laughs> at, the, at the beginning of, of that seven years, I looked like a child trying to grow a mustache. But yeah, now I'm uh, I'm in my 30s and it seems to suit me a little more. So so yeah, it's less embarrassing than it used to be. You're also correct me if I'm wrong, but you had to do the uh, old back shave everything 
grow the mustache, right? Yeah, so it's it's it takes the whole month to grow the mustache. We start November first with a clean shaven face, and then uh, we just we just trim or you know just um, sort of groom around the mustache for thirty days. And uh, yeah, it's I mean it's it's a little bit uncomfortable, but you know I think about the um, you know my discomfort at, compared to people who are suffering from cancer or people who are suffering from a. Uh, one or several mental illnesses, you know, like I can handle uh, that first week or two of having just a sort of barely their mustache. If those guys can can deal with the things that they're dealing with, small sacrifice. Does your girlfriend like the mustache? You know, she uh, she has not said anything um, <laughs> negative about it. Uh, I did ask the other day because let's see, it's it's November eleventh, so my my mustache is not even two two weeks old, and I I was just like, hey, what do you think of this? And she's like, it looks like you're growing in a mustache. And I was <laughs> like, <Fair enough. laughs> I was like, okay, fair. But yeah, she's she has seen me with a full blown mustache uh, in the past. We actually met for the first time Whoa. during Movember. Mo- yeah, I, there I just, you go. There you go. I decided to to get out into the dating world with uh, a half ass mustache <laughs> and I was fortunate enough that she uh, she didn't run away screaming so well that's a good sign and also like a good if she already knows your mustached mustachioed face you know what I mean yes so it's not that much of a surprise there the weirdest part of like I would say either growing in facial hair or even growing your hair long, which I know you have, is always that in-between stage. So Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, with a mustache, fortunately, like by the end of November, I've got a pretty okay mustache. Growing my hair out, I had, you know, months of, of awkwardness um, as it was kind of getting through that transitional period. So if I can do that, I can certainly uh, spend four weeks Uh, growing a mustache that's for sure and so i'll share your link on our social media but uh, is there anything you want to mention of how people can donate or expectations i don't know um yeah the the link unfortunately is not the most convenient thing to to relay over the air so i think sharing the the link in the the episode notes or however you want to do it is definitely the best way to go about doing that but i will say that um this year my goal is 500 dollars. i'm part of a team through my office as well we have a larger goal than that uh, but my personal goal is $500, and if I reach that, we will extend it, of course. Uh, I am currently at $290, so I'm more than halfway towards my goal. Nice. Yeah, and I think 500 would be the most I've ever raised by myself in a single campaign. So if I could hit that $500 mark, that'd be perfect. Yeah, I mean, I'm posting uh, uh, daily uh, photos, you know, so you can see my progress day by day if you're interested in doing that. The uh, the Movember website, just Movember.com, has plenty of information about the fundraiser itself and where all that money goes. Because people wonder, you know, where what's the donation actually going towards? And the, the foundation has uh, all that information on their website. They, they sort of pick and choose these projects that they fund. So if you want to go click around in there, you can see specifically which projects they are uh, they are they are funding. Um, and again, it covers that wide range of men's health issues: prostate cancer, testicular cancer, mental illness, suicide prevention, all that stuff. Yeah, I think that's that's about it. Well, we're gonna get you to that five hundred dollars for sure. I will be donating myself once my new paycheck comes in. FYI. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for hopping on. You know, great cause you're doing. So appreciate that. And once again congrats on the monsters that made us success uh do we know what our next monsters that made us film is yeah so we just recorded our episode for the ghost of frankenstein so uh we actually um 
had a lot of fun talking about that. I was sort of surprised at how much we had to say about that movie. So uh, that episode will drop on uh, November 26th, the last Friday of the month. So if you are into the, the classic uh, horror films, the classic monsters, be sure to keep a lookout for that at the end of the month. But um, up, it, it, at this point, you can, you can see all of our back episodes. We've got everything from The Phantom of the Opera from 1925 to The Wolfman. We just uh, dropped our Wolfman episode at the end of October. So there's, I think, 13 episodes to enjoy um, before our new one drops. Awesome. Well, once again, Dan, thanks so much. Thank you, Brian. Always fun when we get phone calls to our Teen Dream Phone hotline. Appreciate Dan for coming on. Thank him for doing that for charity, growing a mustache for charity. I'll put links on our social media once again. So definitely, definitely donate. I'll be donating, like I said. So thank you, Dan, for doing that. And thank you, Slumbers, in advance for giving a little bit of your money to Dan Cologne and his noble, noble cause. Whoa, 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 the bell doesn't dismiss you. I dismiss you. I was just about to dismiss you. But you're seniors. Sit down. Sit down. I feel like I got to be like Brother Leon in this movie and hit you in the face with, with a pointer or something. Nah, I won't do that. Let's just get on to our episode, though. Pack your favorite jammies. Tell your mother you're sitting up Ryan's. Because we're about to get our party on. Let's leave you with something off this soundtrack. It's a good soundtrack, actually. It's no Garden State, but it's a good soundtrack. How about a little Kate Bush running up that hill? Class dismissed. ago but it is rare these days that we have a first time guest but looking forward to this one so bobby on high school slumber party we introduce ourselves by saying our name our uh high school our high school team name and graduating class optional because we don't want to be ageist here but you, you can say that if you want the big thing is the high school team name though so uh introduce yourself and say that yeah i'm bobby fisher uh i went to wall township high school Class of 2001, uh, we were the Crimson Knights. Crimson Knights, nice. I, I've had a lot of knights here. I was a golden knight myself, so I don't know. Okay. Very, very common, these medieval uh, uh, mascots for high schools. So, Bob, we met through Joey, which was cool. Of course, you, you know, you host a show. Well, you've hosted a couple shows with him, but you host a show now with him. Um, but we, we'll plug that a little bit later, because first, with first-time guests... I love asking this question. Bobby, what was your high school experience like? What were you like in high school? Uh, I don't, not much. I mean, I, was, <laughs> I didn't really play sports. I didn't, I wasn't in band. I was, uh, 
I guess if anything, kind of a wallflower. I, I guess my friends were some crossbreed between stoners and I guess the, if, if we're talking like freaks and geeks, it was probably on the freaks side. Of, of, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little Linda Cardellini with a fatigue jacket. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Love to hear that. I know I said wait for the plug, but How to Win the Lottery, your show at Joey, is our book podcast here on the Cage Club Podcast Network. And when we had met at Joey's Barbecue and we were chatting, you mentioned this movie, I think because of the book, right? Because today we're talking The Chocolate War. What's your history with The Chocolate War? Uh, It was one of my favorite books growing up. It's a young adult book, which is, as young adult books go, it is super adult. (laughs) I was going to say. Like, it ends very much like, if you're like a 12-year-old reading this book, like, kind of, not to get ahead of ourselves, but like, the message of the book is very much like, you can go up against the system, but it will destroy you, (laughs) and ultimately you will not win. So, I don't know, I guess it like, kind of, I just vibed with it as a kid. It's one of the most banned uh, books in in high school, because there's like, a lot of sexual content, there's language, and again- Oh, okay kind of in a weird way like it's not pro bullying but it is like like look kids get bullied and the system's not like nobody's gonna save you right like you have to save yourself so like i think schools are very much like against having that message out there for for kids yeah okay i was gonna ask because that's all i knew about this book like i'd seen it on certain listicles of banned books and and stuff like that I'd heard about the movie just from doing the research for this show. Not a lot of people I talked to had seen the movie, but the book, yeah. I talked to a couple people who had read the book, but yeah, that's all I really knew about it, like that it was banned. So you're saying it was banned for the content, because from watching the movie, I wasn't sure exactly why it was banned. I guess the bullying thing made sense. Honestly, like I think it's banned for vibes. Like It, it doesn't want kids getting this idea in in their head because like you know schools are part of a a system and and for like a book to be mostly about well first of all the school this the the school itself is a system of oppression within within both the book and the movie true for for them to be putting that out there and and for like the message to at least partially be like look the teachers are in on it like they're as much a part of this hierarchical power structure as the bullies are so like if you're one of the kids that is getting picked on by the bullies like maybe the teachers aren't going to help you because they're they're like just a notch above the bullies in you know who's picking on whom here yeah no for sure and that's why when you you mentioned that this was a ya novel like that that kind of took me off guard because today like the ya novels that get adapted into teen films are definitely not like this right i don't know i I guess i never saw it that way i i saw it more as something you would read in high school right like a brave new world or in 1984 um where i wouldn't consider 1984 a ya novel you know but i had no idea what this movie or book was about so i was really happy to see it obviously we're in high school we wouldn't be talking about the movie if we weren't Right off the bat, the thing that I learned about the movie this time that is interesting to me is that it was directed by Keith Gordon. So Keith Gordon, you you may know from, he is the main character in the Stephen King high school movie, Christine, where he's like viciously abused and, and, and brutalized by bullies. He is the non-Rodney Dangerfield lead of Back to School, where wow. again, again, he's like a bad vibes dude. And um, what is he? He's in uh, uh, The Legend of Billie Jean, too. 
Um, although I haven't seen that movie in a really long time. You know, I did not realize that was the same person until you pointed it out now. I was totally, totally like looking at just the director stuff. I'm like, hmm, I don't really know his work. But yeah, I mean, specifically from Christine. Wow, that that is super interesting. And he wrote this movie. I mean, he adapted the movie as well, which I think is really interesting. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to take the like uh, put upon nerd vibes of the kid from Christine and the way that he's like sort of you know, always being uh, shoved around and then like translating that into into this like written and directed by. So I'm assuming it's something that he like cared deeply about translating uh, the stuff from all of his other roles into this into this one movie. Yeah. Wow. Ooh, new lens. <laughs> Thanks. As far as like the production of this film, I thought I was going to get more by doing my research and I didn't. Is this book wise? Is this a book that I, you obviously enjoyed it when you were younger? Is yeah. this a very popular book? I, you know, I don't think so anymore. Part partially because I think that the attitudes towards what people like have changed, right? Like now, I think young adult books are more like uplifting, or their their social commentary is less oblique, less dark, more focused on maybe ways that we can solve problems instead of uh, maybe looking at how it's not worth even trying to solve. <laughs> so I, I don't. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't think like I don't think kids are still reading this book. And if they are, they're probably reading it in like a young adult literature class in college instead of when they're actually like 12. Yeah, because I, I was wondering, um, the budget was only 500000 and it was a huge flop. It made only 300000 I was just wondering if th- there was like a lot of hype around the film because of the book or, or, or I guess I assume that and I see no evidence of that. This one kind of just came and went, which is weird when it's like... I don't know, something made from even a band novel, you would think that people would want to go to the movies to see something that was taboo, right? And I know um, in a lot of the research I did, there were um, a lot of comments about how there was changes from the book to the movie. Yeah. So uh, I don't know, maybe that's what turned people away, but I don't know. I kind of enjoyed the vibe of this film, but I get, I get again, why... Well, I don't believe in banning books in general, but I get why... Yeah. I get why it would scare institutions. Yeah, and it's not like like I think people um again like as a movie it's it's a downer. Even though like like the ending sort of hints at triumphalism because he ends up knocking out Archie, but it's like I mean jumping ahead to the very end. Like he knocks out Archie, but it's also just like, "Oh, okay, well now you're part of the system that you hate and you're seeking the approval of the people that you had to this point been neglecting the approval of and like the idea is that you end up becoming the thing that you hate, right? So, like, I think people don't like that stuff in movies. They they want like, especially teen movies, right? Think of like all of the teen movies. They often end with like I think of something like uh, Three O'clock High or something like that, mm-hmm. where it's like you know that movie ends triumphant. The, he he defeats the bully and all the kids love him. It's very rarely that like a teen movie ends when you're just like ugh. I don't know. Like I, <laughs> I made my tummy hurt, you know? You're so right about that. And especially right, like, in the 80s at this time. Uh, and we could talk about the ending a little later. But since you brought it up, when he's having that boxing match and he uh, knocks Archie out, I thought we were going to get, like, a Karate Kid-style, like, freeze-frame ending, like, a, just a triumph like that. Because you saw that a lot at the time. But but we yeah. don't. Which, which, again, I prefer, I prefer the kind of downer ending. But... It just surprised me. So, you know, I can't wait to talk about it. Yeah, it really goes against the grain with that stuff. Absolutely. 
So every week I read the back of DVD or VHS. I just look for a picture online. So this is kind of a long one, so bear with me. This is what the VHS says for The Chocolate War. There's nothing sweet about The Chocolate War, okay? It's a war of nerves and a war fed by fear. The Virgils are part of the tradition of tyranny at Trinity Catholic School, a sadistic elite who rule their fellow students with systemic intimidation and violence. Archie is the Virgil's twisted genius, torturing with brains, not brawn, and constantly inventing fiendish, cruel assignments, in quotes, for the gang's unfortunate victims to perform. Father Leon is the bitter teacher at the hard center of the chocolate war. Wow, really, uh... Really leaning in on this chocolate thing here. (laughs) In his brutal quest for power at the school, he's using the Virgils to bully their classmates into selling double their usual quota of boxes of chocolate at twice the price in the school's annual fundraising sale. Jerry is the soft-spoken freshman who dares to defy them all, and not even he knows the real reason behind his one-man rebellion. A little out of breath, but yeah. I would have summed it up with there's a line in the very beginning. This is if, if I were if I were designing the uh, if I were designing this box, I would have taken a quote from Archie in the very very beginning where Archie just says, "Life is shit." <laughs> yeah. You know what, Archie? What? Life is sad sometimes. Life is shit. That, that would be that would be my back of the back of the box quote. And then <laughs> more people would watch the movie. You got you have a hit movie on your hand if the back of the box just says life is shit. That's a good call. <laughs> I like it. Let's uh, talk about some of the cast though. Sure. So John Glover was first billed here as Brother Leon. I've definitely seen him in a bunch of other stuff. Uh, were you familiar with him? Uh yeah, John Glover is yeah, he's like in Gremlins too. Yes. The, yeah, he's, he's the head of the building, right? <laughs> yeah. He's in that. I went through his IMDb, and there's all like, okay, I definitely saw him in that. I think he does a really good job here. Recently, I was on uh, John Brooks' podcast, Hard to Believe, and we were talking um, End of Days and Stigmata and some kind of, like, Satanic Panic movies. Okay. And he mentioned this show that he used to watch. Brimstone was the name of this show, and it was was short-lived, 13 episodes, but he played the devil in that. That sounds great. Like, that's ideal casting. Exactly, right? And he also was in Lucifer, I think. Oh, okay. So he's done stuff like that. And here I think it checks out because, yes, he's a priest, but he's definitely, you know, not the not the most friendliest of priests, we'll say. Right. Yeah, I thought he was pretty pretty cool in this. Now, Ian Michael Smith is our lead here. I was happy to see him again because we talked about him on Weird Science. Right, Yeah. Yeah, what happened to him? I don't know, because really the only thing I knew him from was Weird Science, and he doesn't really have much on his resume. There are other guys like that in the 80s. Like, I think, like, what's is his name? Christopher Makepeace, that kid? He's, like, in movies from the 80s, too, and then he disappeared. Like, he's in a number of teen movies like uh, My Bodyguard and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, you're right. I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, maybe they just retire. Ian Michael Smith is still alive. I just want to double check. (laughs) Okay, good. Oh, okay, look, he's got a... MA from Fordham and a PhD from Texas A&M. Guess he just went in a different uh right. <laughs> different, different direction. Right on. <laughs> 
So shout out to him. Um, what do you think of his performance as Jerry here? Uh, our, our real lead, right? Like our lead yeah. team. Yeah, he's good. I mean, he's he's passable. He doesn't actually have to do that much of the heavy lifting. I think most of the heavy lifting uh, goes to Archie. No, he's like serviceable. He, he makes like the sad faces and he uh, mostly has to be like stoic around other people who are like, you know, doing more like intimidating things and stuff like that. So I don't think they don't give him that much to do, but what he, what he has to do, I think he's pretty good at. Yeah, you're right. Like he's our lead in the movies about him, but it's almost about everything that's happening around him at the same time. And then you mentioned Archie played by Wallace Langham. Yeah. Who I know from uh, uh, the Larry Sanders show. Yes. Larry Sanders show. That's a completely different role from this. Yeah. To be honest with you, apparently he's like most famous for like CSI and CSI Vegas. And I don't really watch CSI, but I think a lot of America does apparently. (laughs) There's a whole like genre of actors. Like the other day I was saying, uh, I was talking with some students and I was like, whatever happened to Omar Epps? And they were like, that dude is on TV all the time. It's just like, he's just on stuff that I would never think to watch. Yeah, totally. He totally transitioned to a TV actor. Look, it's good money. And this dude, Wallace Langham, like he's still doing TV. Good for him. And I know there's other movies I've seen him in. I couldn't like pick it out just from the IMDb. It says Little Miss Sunshine, but I don't really remember him in that. So what do you think of the job he did here? You mentioned he did a lot of the heavy lifting. Yeah, he's great, man. He's got like a weird, like uh, almost pervert vibe. <laughs> yes. There's that scene where he like kind of like straddles Jerry a little bit and he's like touching his face and whispering in his ear. And like Adam Baldwin has to just be like, dude, like, what are you doing? Calm down. Like, we're just trying to get this kid to do the thing. And he's like clearly getting off on being sadistic but like also hates himself and everyone hates, like everybody hates him, but he's still like ascended to this position of power somehow. So he's got like this almost like Richard Nixon vibe. That's like, I don't know. I I think he's like kind of remarkable in this movie, especially that he didn't end up doing anything else, but I guess that's because the movie was not hit. Yeah. Again, he transitioned to TV and it looks like mostly comedy stuff or like, you know, stuff like that. So it's, yeah, you're right. Like his face is really great for the kind of stuff that he's doing. In this movie, he's sinister, and I like the Nixon comp because well, yeah, well, actually, that's like I could I could go really deep on the Nixon comparison because he's like like the book was written in 1974, and like I think in a lot of ways the movie reflects uh, American politics, and insofar as like Archie is representative of like a sadistic kind of leader, but like his sadism is is art and it's subtle and it's like this almost. Uh, there's like a beauty to the way that he tortures people and that that's like representative of a certain kind of american politics that like on on the front of it like looks nice but then like once he's defeated you get this kid that's just afterwards is just like yeah let's make him eat their snot in front of everybody and take pictures of his (laughs) sister like that's like much more like the crude uh current politics that have sort of taken over where like the brutalism is much more upfront. There's no attempt to like sheen it over with niceness. Yeah. That's a really good call. I didn't know when the book was written. So that that's fascinating. Yeah. Huh. Just rounding out the cast of people I knew, you already mentioned Adam Baldwin, who yeah, of course. is pretty cool that he's in this movie. I love when Adam Baldwin pops up and things. It's always fun. Was there anyone else you really recognized? Oh, well, you've got uh, Bud Court. Is, oh, is yeah. Uh, Bud Court from, you know, much older. Doesn't look like the Bud Court that we knew from Harold and Maude. It seems like at this point he maybe wasn't acting all that much and maybe just did it for a favor or something like that. But he's got a, a, a small role that makes the... Every time he says the word environment, all the students get up and dance around in circles and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, um, I like that, actually. 
I'm trying to see who else. Oh, Doug Hutchinson. Were you uh, familiar with him? Uh, yeah, I know Doug Hutchinson. He's the, you know, I'm a big X-Files fan. And gotcha. he is a, he plays Tombs in the first season. He's a like an all-time X-Files villain. But he's also a villain in real life because he like married like a 15-year-old or something. What? Oh, okay. Uh, a famous 15-year-old. Courtney, Court, uh, who, who was just back in the press because Chrissy Teigen was taunting her. Um, oh, Doug Hutchinson married that girl. Oh my goodness! Good to know. <laughs> Doug Hutchinson is child bride, <laughs> and he plays Obi, uh-huh. um, who is like you know, if Archie is is Nixon, like the sadism as as an art, then Doug Hutchinson plays like a more like I don't know, like low level thug of of politics who just like is brutal and wants to to openly harm people. Yeah, I saw him as kind of like the henchmen's a bad word, I guess, for like actually, <laughs> but maybe. But like uh those politicians who kind of like rose through the ranks and then just because they were next one up, they kind of got there. Maybe they didn't deserve it, you know. Yeah, well, well I mean, you could you could certainly look at him as Gerald Ford, right? He he ends up being in charge just because Nixon fucked up. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's a good call. Wow, yeah, I wasn't even thinking about that. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, I wasn't too familiar with the rest of the cast, but it was cool to see a lot of those familiar names. The floor is yours, though, because this is my first watch, mm-hmm. and I had zero expectations. Early in the movie, what were some of your favorite scenes or moments? Like, I, I was surprised. I knew that this was about some kind of prep school or private school of some sort. I was surprised to open with like this classic '80s football tryout, you know? Yeah, for sure. Which is it's that's like kind of like a feint, right? In another direction, because mm-hmm. there are so many high school movies where it's like sports occupy a central place because there's like an easy arc that falls into a sports narrative. In a different movie, this kid's Jerry's like whole narrative is is him trying to become the starting quarterback on the football team. Yeah, and that's why I was like, oh. Oh, is this going to be one of those movies? <laughs> so I think they do a really good job um, with that. The other like early note I had is that like I really like the music in this film. Oh yeah, when you said that the movie only cost five hundred thousand dollars, my initial thought was most of that money went to Peter Gabriel and uh, Kate Bush and uh, you know other all of the awesome eighties bands that that make up the soundtrack. But if you watch the movie through all the way to the end of the credits. There is a part where it goes like Peter Gabriel donated his songs to this movie because like he believes in Amnesty International or something like that. He gave the songs to the movie for free, like as charity. Yeah. So uh, I'm glad you bring that up because there's not a lot of scholarship on the film online, but that was one of them. And it said that they were actually only given $15,000 to procure this soundtrack. And they just basically called in favors to get free music and they did a really good job and peter gabriel that was his one request like i'll give you the song but you gotta promote amnesty international in the credits okay yeah that's cool yeah who cares you know you could do worse for as, as far as contracts are concerned for fifteen thousand dollars you could do worse than this one absolutely uh, the one song they wanted to get was heroes by david bowie and he was like i'm not giving it to you for free <laughs> Typical Bowie. Which, whatever. I mean, I get that, too. Yeah, I mean, the closing song, the song that ends the credits is Running Up That Hill by, by Kate Bush. Running Up That Hill, parentheses, deal with God, right? Which is like, like that song is about, like, this, like, Sisyphean task of going uphill constantly and trying to, like, bargain with God to get out of it. So it's, like, very on-point thematic 
to the film. Yeah, and what, what's funny is that's the song that replaced Heroes, and I'm like, I think. Oh yeah. Oh, look, I love Heroes. I love David Bowie, but the Kate Bush one fits yeah, so much yeah, better. Yeah. yeah, the Kate Bush song is great. Kate Bush is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So again, like you said, they could have done a lot worse with with that small budget. Now, it'll probably be post-episode, but I really want to do some kind of long, deep dive and maybe even email people and figure out what the story about this movie is. Because I feel like if you adapt a novel, you should get more than a $500,000 budget. Right. I don't I don't know. That That is, like, surprising to me, other than maybe, like, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know what, like, the film festival circuit was like back then or what, you know, independent film. This is 1988, so it was probably filmed in 87. I don't, yeah, I don't know what the story with that is. It has enough people in it that are recognizable. Yeah, and usually you'll get like BuzzFeed or one of these other companies or listicle places that will do like a Q&A with someone or, or one of these, you know, history of the film things. But I just don't think the movie was popular enough to warrant that, unfortunately. I bet you anything, if you found Keith Gordon's contact information and you emailed him, he would be happy to talk to you about this movie. Probably nobody asks him about it. Everyone's just like, tell me about Rodney Dangerfield and back to school. But he like had this passion project that he wrote and directed, right? So try to find Keith Gordon's uh, info and and shoot email. Challenge issued. And I'm going to try to do that because that sounds like a good idea. Yeah, so early on we learn, right, that like uh, Jerry's mother passed away and he's a freshman at this private school. Uh, We see his father and he's clearly still like distraught and I don't know, really, you, you could tell like it's that old-fashioned mother-father dynamic where probably he related more to his mother and his father's now in his life and they're not really connecting. thought that was interesting. We don't explore it too much. Most of what we get here happens at the school. A lot of the mother stuff like that we see is like these weird like interstitial poetic uh, abstract dream sequences, right? Yeah, there's a lot of visions in the film and there's also a couple like non-linear things that'll happen. Like we see just a shot of the boxing match before he's even asked about the boxing match. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting way to tell the story. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like the, there's that weird scene where it's like people are speaking in different voices and voices that aren't their own. Yeah. With those backgrounds, those colored backgrounds. Too. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, it's very, very strange. That's for sure. So my big thing going to this movie, I was really wondering why it was called the chocolate war. And early on we, we get it because What's his name? Brother Leon, mm-hmm. as we said in the back of the VHS, Brother Leon, you know, puts out the gauntlet to be like, you know, we're doubling the amount of chocolate we're selling. I guess they do this chocolate sale. I was laughing a little bit because there's so many like cute movies about this premise. Like, yeah. You got to sell the cookies. You know what I mean? Right. This this is not that. Ultimately, what was kept drawing me in was the dynamic between Brother Leon and the actual administration with the visuals and they're like gang and and it's even I think they even mentioned at one point like we're so powerful that we have to factor in to these chocolate sale things. I don't know. Uh, what's your take on Brother Leon and the kids and stuff? I mean, I have a I have a lot of take on this. Uh, I think like firstly, almost when you're introduced to Brother Leon, it's the scene where he's like taunting Bailey about having good grades and referring to him as a cheater. And he, like, turns that into a lesson about, like, the value of standing up for yourself against the system in spite of your peers' ridicule. But, like, then it only functions as a lesson because it's administered by the system. When that act of rebellion acts outside of the system, there's, like, such a concentrated attempt to destroy the rebellious actor in in Jerry 
So like you have brother Leon who is like trying to instill these values in kids where it's like, even though you know you're right and I'm saying that you're a cheater, he's valuable because he didn't give in. Like that's like almost like the first message that's put on the screen. So you'd think that Leon would be like all about Jerry's uh, rebellion here because he's like staying true to his own personal values. But then he like, once that lesson is being administered from a student to administrator, instead of from an administrator to a student, it becomes something that is like traitorous, disgusting, something that has to be like rectified extra legally. So like outside of the the like administrative power structure, like via the secret society that functions within the school. So like Brother Leon is a symbol of like what actual bureaucratic administrative power is. And then the vigils and his relationship with the vigils are like functioning as like the people who sort of pull the strings within that system because like secret societies exist exclusively, seemingly exclusively like in the content of elite uh, power hierarchies because they influence bureaucracy. Like if you think of uh, like the secret societies that we like know exist, like the skull and bones at, at like Harvard or Yale or whatever, mm-hmm. wherever, wherever that is, like George Bush, John Kerry, these guys are part of those societies. They exist as part of this secret society that then influences actual bureaucracy, but their secrecy lends itself to sadism because they're not held to any sort of public account which like replicates itself because these members of secret society enter bureaucracy via nepotism because they've been sort of enculturated to it. So you have this like feedback loop of secret society to bureaucracy where each is empowering the other. And it it, like leaves people like Jerry on the outside, right? All the kids that are outside of the, the, the empowered culture within this school, you know, at first they admire Jerry, but then they're, it's made to look uncool because the kids outside of that don't have any authority, whereas the both the secret society and the administration have, like, traditional authority and legal authority. No, absolutely. That That's a great way to put it. It's, I don't know, like I said, it's the most fascinating thing about the movie to me, just their dynamics. Like, I was so curious, like, what the hell was going to happen. I like how they're juggling power between each other or kind of playing this game of tennis between each other with the power because brother leon at one point is really leaning on it on one of the kids is like you got an f in the class Mm -hmm. um you know i might reconsider that if you do this but there are times that they try to lean on brother brother leon as well uh, the vigils I, i don't know i just love the back and forth how it ends too it's like when he said basically that he played their game anyway it's like we can't escape that the game that if we want to, um, you know, have it symbolize government, it's sad but true. You know, we can't we can't really escape that game. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, it's it's interesting because, like, you know, talking about like authority and it functioning as symbolic of government. Like, I've been teaching essentially this. Like, I'm, I've been teaching Max Weber's tripartite classification of authority, which is traditional, charismatic, and legal authority. I think the movie really deals with uh, traditional authority more than the other two, because there are no, like, police in the, in the movie, and charismatic authority maybe functions as part of the, the vigils, but mostly they're, like, traditional authority. But, like, the important thing about it, about it is that authority is only legitimized by people accepting it, right? So, like, any authority can be denied by anyone at any time. All you have to do to deny authority is just, like, be like, no. I, I don't I don't agree but like one person's denial of authority allows more and more people to deny authority more easily which is why like once Jerry is like not accepting either brother Leon's authority or the vigil's authority like he has to be destroyed 
you know, they start bringing in all these outside forces and take them down because like their power is not real. At any point, anyone could be like, you know what? No. Like, who are these kids that are, that are picking on me? Why do I have to listen to them? Why do I have to unscrew this desk? Why do I have to take pictures of my naked sister? Why do I have to eat my snot in front of everybody? Like all those kids could just say no, but they don't because of this like, culture of believing that this thing has power when its powers really only exists in the minds of people at the school yeah and again that's it's just so fascinating to me because when he when jerry does say no it's not prompted by like a big rebellion you know he's not like fuck everybody let me just be a rebel like he's he has accepted one of these what are they called? Missions? Or I don't know. Yeah, the vigils The vigils give him a mission to deny the chocolate for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, he's supposed to uh, accept the chocolate and start selling. Yeah, so I, I don't know. What do you make of the fact that we're not talking about someone who, who is like Che Guevara entering this high school, right? Like that spark of rebellion was given by the people who give power, and then he just never gave it up after that whether you know he he can't really explain it in the movie maybe it just felt good i mean i could see why it's cool but yeah sorry what were your thoughts on that i i mean he's not politically motivated right he's like there's this uh herman melville story called bartleby the scrivener which was made into a movie with crispin glover um but like uh bartleby the scrivener it's it's like a really weird story because bartleby uh, like he shows up to work as a scrivener and eventually he's just like stops working and the boss keeps saying like why aren't you working and he's just like i would prefer not to and his answer to every question is i would prefer not to and you never really understand why he's stopped doing everything that he's doing and eventually he doesn't he eventually he dies because he keeps on like he doesn't want to do anything he doesn't want to eat but like you you don't you don't like you're never really given a reason for hmm. why he has decided to not do things um and jerry's kind of like that like once those 10 days are up, he keeps not selling the chocolate. And largely you get the you get the idea that he's not selling the chocolate mostly just because everybody else wants him to. And he doesn't like have to be part of it if he doesn't want to, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you've seen this film called If. Oh yeah, sure. The Malcolm McDowell. Yes, yes, the Malcolm McDowell. We've mm-hmm. co- we've covered it on this show and there are some similarities here, but that's the major difference to me. Like in If it's like, you know, let's have a concerted effort to really create this rebellion in this school against a similar style system of oppressors, student oppressors who are in cahoots with the administration. But like I said, the big difference here is the passivity of our lead about um, just entering this quest. And eventually he's baited into being a little bit more, active Mm -hmm. but for the most part the biggest piece of rebellion he has here is just simply saying no and not not participating in this chocolate sale and again i love how brother leon is asking him you know he asks everyone as a formality do you want to do it you don't have to but you kind of have to you know crane yes devlin of course boss farley yes goubert Gobert. Oh, um, 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 yeah. Uh, yes. You don't seem to be with us today, Gobert, at least not in spirit. I'm sorry, Brother Leon. Let me remind you that this is a project by the students, for the students. This is your sale, your project. Yes, Brother Leon. Good. Then you accept? 
course, Brother Leon. Hartnett. Yes. And Johnson. Why not? Uh, McCloskey. Sure. Perkins. Yes. Renault. Renault. You are here, aren't you, Renault? Last call, Renault. No. What? No. You did say no, Renault. Yes. Now, uh, I, let me make this clear. Yes means that, like every other student in the school, you agree to sell 50 boxes of chocolates. No, and let me point out that Trinity forces no one to participate against his wishes. That is the great glory of Trinity. No means that you don't want to sell the chocolates. So now, what is your answer, yes or no? No. Santucci. Uh, of course, sir. Tessier. Yes, sir. Williams. Yes, sir. Well, you may pick up your chocolates in the gym, gentlemen. Those of you who are true sons of Trinity, that is. Those of you who are not, I pity you. Class dismissed. Just the simple act of saying no starts a, a mini rebellion, if you will. Yeah, well, it's funny, like, how petty adults can be when mm -hmm. kids tell them no, right? Like, Brother Leon starts off with that, like, are you going to do it? Like, it's it's all part of the school spirit. But, like, by the end, he's like, he's like, and if you're not a true member of Trinity, then God have pity on your soul. Like, he's so, he's so like, uh, uh, petty and, and, like, I don't know, like, picking on, on Jerry in a way that relationships between teachers and students shouldn't be like that, right? Definitely not. But, um... I don't know. I don't know. I, I really enjoyed this movie for the most part. Like, I was drawn into the story. Maybe I'll read the book. I haven't read it in a really long time. So, uh, yeah, if you want to read it, I'll read it. I'll read it along alongside you and we can do it. Do a catch up. Oh, cool. That's a challenge. I might take you up on that for sure. Look, assigning me homework on High School Slumber Party. I love it. That's the teacher in you. Yeah, I, guess, I mean, I guess I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. What else stuck out with you about the movie? I have two more things that I think are, they both have to do with uh, the kid whose name I forget, but he is the kid who Archie like claims to have a picture of him where he's maybe masturbating or something like that. Uh, yeah. Uh, Janza is what they Janza. call okay. me. So number one, all the little kids beating the shit out of uh, Jerry is hilarious to me. <laughs> like when he, when that guy Jans is like Archie, like tells him to like intimidate Jerry into, into uh, taking the chocolates and like Jans like outsources that to a bunch of children. Like that's funny because it's like more humiliating to get beaten up by kids. And, and like the image of it is, is funny. Cause those kids are, you know, you have little kids uh, beating him. You live in the closet. What do you mean, closet? 
That's what I mean by class. But you're hiding in there. Hiding what from who? From everybody. From yourself, even. Hiding that deep, dark secret. What secret? That you're a fag. You're a fairy living in a closet, hiding away. Oh, look, the fairies blush. Are you blushing? Listen. No, you listen. Are you polluting, Trinity? You won't sell the chocolates like everybody else, and now we find out that you're a fairy. You're really something, you know that? And Trinity has ways of weeding the homos out. But you were smart enough to get by, weren't you? You must be creaming all over your little faggot self. 400 ripe young bodies to rub up against. I'm not a fairy. Mm. Mm. I bet that's what killed your mommy, isn't it? Finding out her little baby was a faggot. You son of a bitch. What'd you call me? The son of a bitch. but it's also like a pretty good metaphor for like decontextualized actors and political action right like you have people who are um have no stake in whatever the political action is doing the dirty work for the people who are multiply removed from from action like you can there's like a direct connective tissue to things like war with that right you're you're essentially like outsourcing your own anger at another country to like a bunch of working class kids that have no beef with with anybody but like now are part of this fight because you decided to to invade somewhere yeah that's a great call like little kids beating him was like both funny and profound i mean i thought that this might be a vision of his or you know because he keeps having whether they're dreams or just artistic for the film i'm like what where are these little kids coming from but no it ends up being real (laughs) yeah and and like i think the the other the other major thing that i have uh here is like there are those cuts directly between Archie and and Janza when they're speaking on the phone, and you see like Archie in his bedroom, and it's like he's he's like very much in this like Wes Anderson style centered shot, and his walls are completely uh, like they're blank, but he's got like maybe like a painting or something of butterflies, mm-hmm. and he's like he's like in a pretty big room by himself, and they're intercutting that between like Janza who is in this room with like. Well, what I'm assuming is like his younger brothers and there's like uh, TVs that are on everywhere and there's just like uh, a lot of clutter and you get the sense that Janza is like representative of the underclass. So again, it's like it's that political metaphor of of the upper class, these elites using using the working class to do their dirty work. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Those are the two for, for, for Janza and then like the end where Archie has like, two quotes at the end that are that are like in some ways sum up the entire movie when he's like explaining to adam baldwin why he knew this would all work he's like man people are two things greedy and cruel we are all bastards yeah because if you can accept that like in theory you could probably go 
pretty, to pretty fucked up places, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I think our humanity, maybe, maybe I'm too optimistic, but our humanity is what keeps us from being this guy, right? Like our, our just compassion for others. But I don't know, those who wield the power or a lot of them might have more have this mindset, right? I think I think so. Yeah, I think like John Ronson has a has a good book called The Psychopath Test, which is a, it's a nonfiction book about the about like what it means to be a psychopath and stuff like that. And some of the statistics that they have in it have like you know a higher percentage of people who are politicians and and like high uh, wage earning stockbrokers, financial advisors, and things like that. Like those people tend to test high on uh, levels of you know, not giving a shit about other people. Oh, <laughs> that's depressing. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about the ending now that as we've, you know, kind of built up to it here. Ends in a boxing match, more or less, which was kind of surprised by. The the lore of the kind of visuals is interesting. Um, they have this system where when when the dude who, I don't know what the title is, they say it in the movie, but like, uh, the dude who's like handing out the tasks of or, maybe the assigner, the assigner, or something like that. Yeah, you know when he assigns the missions to people, like a, a way to keep him in check for it not being that crazy is they have four marbles. Um, one one of them is black, and you got to pick from that. So you basically have a is it four or six? I think it's six. Six, right? Yeah, six. So it's a one in six chance if you pick the black marble as the assigner, uh, you have to do the task instead of the other person. So, you know, that kind of made sense to me, right? Like, it keeps you from being like, kill this person, because theoretically, one in six chance, you yeah. might have to kill the person. It is hilarious when you think of when Doug Hutchinson takes over the role of the assigner, and he and he starts saying things like, get him to take a naked picture of his sister. It's like, what is Doug going to do <laughs> if he ends up selecting that, that marble? Yeah, that's a really good point. <laughs> um, and then he's like, oh, no, his mom, right? Like, because you could be like, maybe he doesn't have a sister, but... Oh, yeah, that's right. Probably yeah. has a mom. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. <laughs> but when we get to the ending, he's basically set up this big boxing match where they're selling not just tickets, but like, uh, what do you call that? Like, a raffle. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, a, like, it's a raffle. Yeah, it's on punches. Yeah, which is, you know, it could go really badly, right? Because And, and it does for like the beginning because it's like the first three or four hits is all um, like this guy hitting Jerry instead mm-hmm. of like Jerry doesn't get off a punch in the beginning. Yeah. And how they're setting it up too is basically that Janza, the bully, is going to fight, is going to fight Jerry, and they they've built to it because of what you said that whole bullying incident with Janza on Jerry, and you know he's throwing homophobic things at him, and oh yeah, that's a whole that's a whole other other part where it's like the him baiting him by by uh, using homophobic slurs over and over again that, that, that felt very 80s to me or even 90s i mean that's the high school that i grew up in you know yeah we can't pretend that that wasn't a thing because it really was a thing sure. now that we bring it up though was there any underlying implication that one of these characters was gay is that something well you know archie dismisses it immediately when when janza is like is like is he queer archie's just like of course not what do you what do you know of, of course of course he's not but, you know, traditionally narratives about all boys prep schools, like there is sexual tension that exists with like a, a, among them. And if any of these characters is gay coded, it's Archie, right? Archie is the one that like 
feels like he is uh which which is like a negative aspect of the text because there is like this this trope of like the sadistic homosexual right Mm -hmm. but there is again there's that scene where archie is like they're in like a basement or something archie like is you know touching jerry's face and he's like whispering in his ear and he kind of straddles him a little bit if there's anyone in the movie that is gay coded I, i think it's archie not not the other characters yeah, I was thinking about that. Uh, again, it's never said or anything like that, but it just wouldn't surprise me the way that it's being presented to us, at least. But yeah, back to this ending boxing match, though. Archie, first he draws the white marble, because I don't think he thought it was a mission like that, but Adam Baldwin shows up and he's like, no, you got to draw. Why do you think that he was turning on him like this? Why does Adam Baldwin hate Archie? Yeah, at this point. I think Adam Baldwin... Well, I think everybody hates Archie. Fair. Right? <laughs> Fair. I, th- I think it's because Archie is unlikable. Well, like, firstly, Archie thinks that he's better than everybody else. Like, he he, he imagines himself to be, like, this artist among among uh, brutes, which is true in some ways. But, like, he is... Like, Adam Baldwin... Uh, there's no point in the movie when Adam Baldwin and Archie seem like they're friends. No, don't There's always that. this tension. And it's the tension of you know, the first in command and the second in command, because like, I think there's this idea that Archie thinks that he's in charge. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Like, I definitely saw it as a power move because there are moments when you kind of forget about the Adam Baldwin character. And you could, if you were, if this was on cable for whatever reason, you're just popping in, you would think Archie was in charge of this gang until we get these kind of moments of structure and Adam Baldwin sort of puts him in his place. Yeah. Like that's how I saw it. Just like, (laughs) <laughs> hey buddy you're not uh, like you might have think you've done a good job and yeah you did but i'm still in charge here and we're still going to follow these rules and uh archie ends up drawing first the white marble and he thinks he's out of the weeds but there's two guys up there he draws the, the black marble and uh he's got a box he's got a box uh jerry and like we mentioned earlier jerry has this triumphant 80s sports boxing match sort of and he, he ends up knocking uh, archie out yeah, raises his fists and everything. There, we, we do get the kind of freeze frame moment, but then instead of credits rolling after the freeze frame, then we see Archie like tracking the crowd and he sees his one friend that's clearly disappointed in him for, for like buying into all of this. And then we track his eyes to another part of the crowd and we see him looking at his dead mother who's clearly disappointed. And then we track his eyes to a different part of the crowd and we see Brother Leon giving him a thumbs up yeah, because Brother yeah. Leon... Like wreck I, and and like I don't know if Brother Leon is actually there. That feels like it is kind of a dream mm-hmm. sequence. But it's like Brother Leon's thumbs up is him saying like you're a part of it now. You're a part of the system that you were seeking to uh, dismantle. Uh, you know you've um, essentially sold all of your chocolate through this fight, and and you've taken down Archie, which is what everybody hates Archie. So you're just like us. You're one of us. Yeah, yeah, and I I liked that better than the freeze frame for sure. As like fucked up as it is, I still yeah, yeah the freeze frame totally totally would not would not work. <laughs> like I said in the research, people said there was changes from the books. And do you remember the ending of the book? Was it different? Uh, you know, I do, I, I don't actually really like. I, I've watched the movie three times between the last time that I read the book mm-hmm. and, and and now. So. You know, my memories of which is which are all jumbled up. For sure. So I'm not, I'm not uh, 100% sure what the differences are and how, and how it ends. By memory, the book is like even more depressing than, than the film is. Yeah, because some of the criticisms were like, 
oh, they Hollywooded this up and stuff like that. And I'm like, really? <laughs> that's, that's such a funny criticism because this is this movie I feel like is so like, like it's almost like an art film for, for teens, you know? Definitely, definitely. I was actually pretty surprised to see that. Uh, but you know, we'll have to we'll have to do the homework you assigned me and for you reread and for me just read the book because I am curious and uh, you know maybe I'll probably do a follow up and assess that because I don't know. <laughs> It's just yeah, interesting yeah. To we'll, me. we'll do like we'll do like a little mini episode uh, uh, where we where we follow up on the book. I love it. I love it. All right. So every week on High School Slumber Party, I ask a set of questions at the end of the episode. Uh, so the first question I like to ask my guest is, "Who was this movie made for? Who do you think the intended audience for this film was?" Oh God. Um, I think like in some sense, the intended audience is like the. You know, it's like the anti Karate Kid crowd. I, I mean, I, I love Karate Kid. I think that's I think that's a great movie. But it is like like the Karate Kid is a movie for kids who were not really bullied, who like to look at bullying as a narrative gesture, like like a way for someone to overcome adversity and to to move past it and build character. Whereas like I think most people that were really bullied don't look at it like that at all. They just look at it as like a traumatic part of their life that sucked. They don't think like that made me stronger. They think like, oh fuck, I wish that didn't happen to me. So it's a movie for those kids. Yeah, that's a good call. And that and you could kind of see why that's probably wouldn't inspire a Hollywood pro- producer yeah. or backer to give you a lot of money you know yeah, yeah. they should remake this movie though they should do it they should do it again now with like and have it be like a24 or something and make it make it like an uh an art movie yeah there's more of a taste for that right now uh, people are more willing to or maybe i don't know about more willing but i think we just have more ability to watch that kind of stuff now that uh there is more of a market for like the a24 style film and i think people are more willing to walk into a theater or streaming or whatever and be like, I might not feel good at after this, but if it's well-made and teaches a lesson, you know, or not a lesson, you know what I mean? Like that we're yeah. more ready for it now. I also think like when we talk about why this movie failed a little bit, like I think like an interesting thing that I didn't think before is like, it's possible some people went to this like, oh, it's the kid from Weird Science, and then like, <laughs> once like they sort of like they they were expecting a John Hughes movie, and so like once they they, they like probably got like ten minutes into it where when Ar- when Archie is like life is shit, and they're just like, what is this? Why am like, wh- why did I go see this movie? I wanted you know Molly Ringwald kissing someone underneath the bleachers. Yeah, and I'll just bring it back to if right if is kind of an art movie. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it still has, you might not agree with what these guys are doing, school shooting mm-hmm. and all these days, but it has this kind of lift to it where we keep going upwards in like the plan and you see their plan getting executed. There's not really a plan, uh, at least from Jerry, right? Like he doesn't have this whole scheme to win the school rebellion. He's just, it's a rebellion again of saying no. So I could see exactly what you're saying. Like this, if you're looking for a weird science-like plot, you're yeah. not you're not getting a lot of uh, carrots throughout the movie to like feed your not interest, but just like feed that like you know can-do spirit, right? Yeah, I mean it's the difference between how cinematic something like the French Revolution is versus like how cinematic like a hunger strike is. Like you can 
it's hard to film a hunger strike, you know, but like you can film people getting bayoneted and guillotined. I actually was thinking about this with uh, just read a book on Vicksburg, like the battle, the battle of Vicksburg in the Civil War. You know, the book was arguing how it was more important than Gettysburg. And I was like, why don't we talk about Vicksburg that much? And just from reading the book, it's like Gettysburg is this epic cinematic battle where there's clear cut winners and losers that day. And I don't know, it's more fun to the eye. But Vicksburg, you can't really make a Vicksburg movie because it's like it's a siege, right? It's like a long, slow process of things happening and. Yeah, I don't know. There's certain things that are just that play better for the audience than other things. But you're totally right. Totally in the hands of a artistic filmmaker and with the right crowd and the right backing. I think you know you need not like a crazy FX budget, but you need some kind of significant budget, at least promotional budget, right? Like this yeah. would be really cool today. Yeah, yeah. Got to get Peter Gabriel back on board though. Oh, that'd be awesome. <laughs> Throw up another Amnesty International symbol at the end and, and uh, bring him back on. <laughs> okay, so my next question is most likely to succeed. And this is for which character won the movie? Who do you think came out on top in this film? Uh, I guess Doug Hutchinson's character. Right. Which, that feels insane to say, but he's the only one at the end of the movie that is having a good time. 100%. Like, so I wrote him and I wrote Adam Baldwin potentially because, like, he asserted his power. Yeah, and, and also Brother Leon, who, like, because they did sell. Oh, him. good call, yeah. So he's, like, he he risked all of his power by overextending himself economically, but he was able to, like, manipulate his underlings to, to return that, and now he looks like a hero to all the investors in the school. Yeah, so the system... It's most likely yeah. to succeed. The system, the system wins. <laughs> it's definitely not Jerry. Tell you that much. No, no, Jerry. Both Jerry and Archie are both losers. Although I will say, probably, if I had to, like, if I had to guess, I would guess that Archie will ultimately be an incredibly successful human. Yeah. If anything, this is just going to be a chip on his shoulder to even go in harder next time when he's in college, right? Like, to be weirder to be more so. Because, like, an interesting thing is like this is these kids' senior year. So, like, they are literally only in the vigils for, like, another six months after this. So, like, where do they go from there, you know? just I, Again, I just imagine some college and doing something similar with some society, right? Or fratern- yeah. fraternity, you know? Yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> so this next award is called the Wooderson Award, and it's named after the Wooderson character from Dazed and Confused, Matthew McConaughey. Originally, Richard Linklater only had the, that character in for, like, a brief scene, Matthew McConaughey did such a good job that uh, he wrote more scenes for him and added him to more parts of the movie. So the Wooderson Award we give out to a character in here who maybe played a smaller role who you would have liked to have seen more of or got more lines from or anything, really. Oh, I mean, got to go with Bud Court. Oh, yeah. Good call there, right? Yeah. It's such a small role, but like, you know, partially because like, you know what Bud Court can do. You know how he's like a great comedic actor and and he is only in maybe three minutes of the movie you see that's the whole point i am sick and tired of this environment shit at least we'll have one teacher who will cross it off their vocabulary list and began to deal with an increasingly hostile environment increasingly 
hostile. Environment. So, uh, as he ventured further and further into his new environment, he found that he himself had to adapt to his environment, since that environment was now far more complex than any he had before faced. Thus, like modern man, his environment and the environment around him shaped him as he had shaped his environment. Well, uh, I hope you've all enjoyed this lesson on the environment. And uh, I will see you gentlemen tomorrow afternoon you can still walk. And it's a great scene, and it's a fun scene, and the way he is in that scene, that professor, like he totally, at the beginning, lets on that he doesn't know what's, or he pretends he doesn't know what's going on. He's so ready for that reveal that, uh, <laughs> what's the word again? Uh, environment. Environment, that he, you know, he has it on the chalkboard, and yeah, like, you're right, that's a good call, because I was struggling with that one. Yeah, gotta go with Bud Court. All right, Long Duck Dong Award. Um, this is named after Long Duck Dong character in 16 Candles. Sure. Yeah. Original definition of the award is like something that you, a character you would delete from the movie because it doesn't really stand the test of time today. Or if there's no character like that, is there uh, just a character whose omission from the film would make the film better? Um, You know, I don't, I off the top of my head, I don't think so. I feel like it's a pretty tight tight movie tight mm -hmm. cast oh you know what that girl doesn't do that much right like he he has like the 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 like leather jacket girl that he is crushing on yeah um and and she's got like uh you know five minutes of screen time maybe exists only to show that jerry's not gay uh so <laughs> you might be right <laughs> yes yeah, so, so it would like you know maybe up the tension if if you removed her from it that makes it an entirely male cast which is maybe appropriate for an all boys school and and might like uh raise the 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 levels of of plausible tension around plausible sexual tension between the characters yeah that's a good call i i really didn't have an answer for this but maybe it is the girl you're right because this is one of those movies where it's okay almost that it's an all male cast because that's yeah. a part of the this weird environment they're building it is sort of about like toxic masculinity too right like there is there is this like idea that in a very lord of the flies way where it's like if you get all these boys together in a compact space and and like give them this weird political structure like sadism will just like bloom from that uh like a flower you know yeah yeah definitely good call all right cameron fry award and this award is named after alan ruck's character in ferris Bueller's day off and Alan Ruck was famously 30 when the movie was released. So this this award is for someone who you thought maybe was a little too old to play a high schooler. Um, I, I, I have no idea what his actual age is. And and maybe because I think of him as his character from My Bodyguard. But Adam Baldwin is always coded as like a 30-year-old among 12-year-olds <laughs> to me. Like he could – like he seems so much more manly than everybody else. Um, so probably him, but like, what's interesting about this movie is that like, normally Adam Baldwin would be playing Jansa, right? Like, yeah, yeah, that's a good call. 
he doesn't remotely have that kind of like physical role in this. He doesn't like he's not beating anybody up. He's not a bully. He's not intimidating anybody uh, beyond like, you know, just his his like seat of power. I don't I don't know why you cast Adam Baldwin in that role instead of the Janza role, unless you're trying to just, you know, go against type. I guess so. Uh, but he he was actually 25 when he shot this. And I, I agree with you. Face value, that's who I would have definitely picked. But I cheated and looked up the actual ages. Okay. Doug Hutchinson was 27, <laughs> which is pretty old, right? Like, I, I thought he did a good job, honestly. So, like, but, yeah, yeah 27. Interesting. He looks like, like he's also in around this time. He's in another movie called uh, Fresh Horses with uh, Molly Ringwald and Andrew McCarthy, where he plays Andrew McCarthy's friend. I think that it maybe even came out the same year as this and and they're college students in that. So you have like the, this, you know, he's playing, he's, he's playing older roles at the same time. Interesting. All right. Bobby Fisher, the uh, moment of truth for our discussion here on the chocolate war. So in high school slumber party, we grade in the a plus to F system, you know, the old high school system yeah. Now I'm handing you the manila card. I'm giving you the red pen. But before you make your grade, we always use a little cheat sheet here. We take a look at what the critics and the people said, if you will. The critical score on Rotten Tomatoes is 82%, but only 11 reviews by critics, which again, fascinating. 67% by the audience with around 1,000 reviews, which is not a lot. And the film nerds over in Letterboxd give it 3.4 out of 5. But we, we don't care about any of that. Bobby Fisher, what is your grade A plus to F for The Chocolate War? I am going to give this an A plus, um, which is a pretty rare uh, grade for me. But what what I'll say about that is that uh, I have a list here of movies from the year 1988, which I, in, in my opinion, is one of the great years in all of cinema. Oh, it definitely is. Definitely is. So I have my, my top five. I'll, I'll give you I'll give you my top ten here. Actually, uh, Chocolate Wars number one, uh, Talk Radio number two, Die Hard number three, High Hopes the Mike Lee film number four, Akira number five, Miracle Mile number six, Eight Men Out number seven, Roman Polanski's Frantic number eight, uh, short film about killing number nine, and Midnight Run as number ten. There are probably other movies on there that I haven't watched uh that uh recently that should be higher than that but like i have the chocolate war as the best film of the year in one of in my opinion the all-time great years of cinema so uh i'm i'm a plus all the way on this one wow that's great score great score and you're totally right though about 1988 as you were talking looked up the highest grossing films of 88 and Let's see. Gotta be Die Hard, right? Die Hard was 10. Big is 9. Ooh. Cocktail is 8. A Fish Called Wanda, 7. Ram- I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Cocktail made more money than Die Hard? Apparently. <laughs> A Fish Called Wanda, 7. Rambo, 3 is 6. Twins okay, is 5th, yeah. which is interesting. Yeah. Crocodile Dundee, 2 made more money than all those other films. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, Coming to America, 3. Who Framed Roger Rabbit 2, and the highest grossing film of that year was Rain Man. Oh, that's that's bonkers, that Rain Man. I mean, yeah, Who Framed Roger Rabbit would definitely be in my top 10. I just haven't watched that movie in a long time. Yeah, no, it's just fascinating. Definitely a fascinating year. Yeah, so you're saying The Chocolate War was not in the top 10. It was not. It was not. 
<laughs> I actually really enjoyed the film. I think I'm going to give it an A minus. I was like teetering B plus A minus, but your A plus has uh, you were the tide that lifted all boats. So all I'm right. go- I'm going with A minus. Really, really enjoyed the film. I'd like the context of the book, but we'll do that in the future. Yeah, sure. But yeah, I mean, really exceeded my expectations today. That's for sure. Cool, cool, cool. Got some more questions though for you. Okay. Including a high school slumber party favorite. If Bob, you and I are at this slumber party together, this chocolate war slumber party, and you remember when you're when you were a kid and you had sleeping bags that had like things on them, like you know, like Ghostbusters or something, sure. right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, what would your chocolate war themed sleeping bag look like? Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, it's not a movie that really lends itself to iconography. No, it does not. <laughs> Maybe the there's the patch, the Trinity School patch that's, that's cool. on, on their jackets. Maybe throw that on there. Maybe a couple of uh, white and black marbles around it. Ooh, I like that, yeah. And then I don't think there was a symbol for the vigils, which seems strange. It feels like that's a real, like, uh, they really dropped the ball. There's yeah, missed opportunity. opportunity for like some real graphic design there but uh yeah i'm gonna say the, the trinity school patch and then some some black and white marbles i like it i like it i'm gonna go simple design here i really liked the robes of the brothers they're i guess they're supposed to be like franciscan but yeah the monks. well it's a catholic school right i don't know yeah. I, I, I guess that counts right but they're a they're a brown that is really cool and it's again reminds me of chocolate as well so i want the robe with like the cross you know like (laughs) and that to be my sleeping bag sure great yeah this though this is my favorite question every week this next question if you and i are on the at the magical blockbuster that still exists that has every film that has ever existed in the history of film up until this moment We walk in knowing we're renting the Chocolate War, but we get to the front counter, we see a sign, and there's a sale that day. It says, rent two movies, get one free. And I say, Bobby, I'm going to hold our place in line here, run to the back, get two other movies that we should watch on our The Chocolate War Slumber Party. What two other movies would you pick? Uh, So it's a three, it's a triple feature? Triple feature, yes. Oh, gosh. Um, This might take me some time. That's okay. Uh, Triple feature with The Chocolate War. Uh, I'm going to say Rushmore. Ooh, like that. Because um, Rushmore has that great, like, one of my all-time favorite scenes, which is the when Bill Murray's giving a speech, and he's, like, he's like giving advice to the poor kids, and he's like, <laughs> find the older kids and take them out. <laughs> so, like, yeah, Rushmore, and then uh, <laughs> maybe, like, Grave of the Fireflies or something like that, something that's just really, like, soul-destroying. Do you know that movie, Grave of the Fireflies? I haven't seen it, but I've heard of it. And read yeah, it's, about a, it. it's an anime movie about kids starving to death after a uh, nuclear war in Japan. Yeah, that's how I've heard of it. Because <laughs> people talking about that. That's <laughs> very sad. <It's> a very, <laughs> very sad movie. So maybe, I mean, those. I, I don't know that those go together all that well. Rushmore's funnier. Chocolate War is funny, but like kind of not not really funny. And then and then Grave of the Fireflies is just absolutely devastating. So maybe maybe those three. We'd have to like watch them in an order that wouldn't depress us before going to bed. Yeah, I would go uh Chocolate War, Fireflies, Rushmore. Nice, love it. You end on the on the up note. Well, Bobby, this was awesome. Really, you know, appreciate you coming on for the first time. Thank you for, you know, pointing me in the direction of this film. Anywhere people can follow you, find you, or anything you want to plug. Obviously, uh, you know, your show with Joey and stuff. Yeah, uh, uh, come join us at How to Win the Lottery. 
It's a, essentially an online book club. Our module this time around, season two, is campus novels. So campus or varsity novels. So, so novels that are either from the perspective of high school or college students or from the perspective of high school or college teachers. So, you know, that, that kind of fits in with, with, uh, with you guys and what your audience is, is here to listen for. So, you know, come over, join us, join us there. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Lemonade Lullaby. And I think that's it. You came on on a good time because, uh, you know, your, your lap, if you will, what you're doing up there. And that's what we love here. Just talking yeah. about talking right. about teen drama. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's great because it's like, yeah, I'm sure this is something that you guys hit on, but it's, it's like an era when like everything matters deeply and, and emotions are, are much more uh, purely felt because you haven't been corrupted yet. So like that's what like high school narratives are great because they, you know, people haven't been um, worn down or made cynical by, by the world around them. Well put. Great way to end. And you know, thanks again, Bob. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So great having Bobby Fisher on the podcast for the first time. Love to have him on again. More importantly, though, he assigned us some homework. Looks like we got to read The Chocolate War. And, of course, listen to him and Joey's podcast, The Book Podcast on the KTLA Podcast Network, How to Win the Lottery. Definitely check that out. I feel like you guys have already won the lottery because you've discovered this beautiful little show called High School Slumber Party, and I appreciate that. <laughs> that sounded cocky, but whatever, it's true. This is a labor of love, and I love it. All right, a little Monday homework for you guys. We're having so much fun doing High School Slumber Party AP that if I have an episode in the can, we're pretty much going to do two AP episodes a month. This Monday is no different. We will be talking about a movie called Everyone's Talking About Jamie. Baby, I'm ahead. Ladies and gentlemen. Legit. Would you give a warm welcome for the soon-to-be legendary... Jamie New. Me. Sorry, miss. Just daydreaming. Pretty. I've got something to show you. you got to swear not to tell anyone. Tell anyone what? I want to be a drag queen. Oh, my days. You belong in the spotlight. So, why do you want to be a drag queen? Because it's all I ever dream of. And when I close my eyes, it's all I can see. You just found yourself a mentor. Yeah, yes, please. I don't know who I am. You're 16, of course you don't. Do what you need to do. Be who you want to be. Mom, do you ever wish I were just normal? No. And what's normal anyway? Stop waiting for permission to be you. If I don't say it enough, you're the best friend a boy who sometimes wants to be a girl could ever wish for. Everyone's Talking About Jamie is available on Amazon Prime, so it should be pretty easy for you to watch. And just a reminder, High School Slumber Party AP covers films of the last couple years because we talk a lot of nostalgia on regular High School Slumber Party that AP, we want to bring it back and make you guys realize there's a lot of great movies coming out these days too. 
every era has its great movies and bad movies, right? So we're here to explore the new ones on AP. And I say we because my official co-host, Island Addington, will be here on Monday. And she always is here when we talk AP movies. Love working with Island, so check that out wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's leave you with another song off the soundtrack here for The Chocolate War. How about Peter Gabriel, right? I Have the Touch. Brought to you by Amnesty International. One more thing, of course, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop around once in a while, you can miss it. Oh, before I forget, the Hall of Fame ballots are out. Some of the secret panel of voters have already submitted their completed ballots back. I can't wait. So you'll find out the second annual class of the High School Hall of Fame. The induction ceremony will be around Thanksgiving weekend. So stay tuned for that. Later, dudes.